Let's look at the Great Awakening. Now, how do you cover the Great Awakening in one class? You don't. Uh, you kind of hit the highlights and uh, kind of um, just uh, hit some of the key people, some of the key um, circumstances that were going on at that time. But you can't cover the entire Great Awakening. In fact, uh, I know Stephen was here last week. <laughs> it was so funny because he came out afterwards. I preached over there so that he comes out afterwards. He goes, man, that's a pressure cooker in there. I said, really? What's well, right? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. He says, because, you know, Mark, with these notes that he produces and everything else, you know, the standard's so high. And then every week, anyone who fills in for him, you know, like, okay, now, and we got all these sources. How do you bring it together and boil it down? And especially the Great Awakening, how do you boil that down? You know, just into into one lesson. But uh, again, it, it, he said, oh, man, he said it, to be able to do it like Mark does. You know, he said, well, so that's the first thing. We don't ever try to do it like he does. You know, he's unique. I mean, how do you do it like Mark Lanier? You know, and so anyways, we uh, we, we just uh, try to, to cover for him. But it's just uh, I told him, I said, but, you know, every one of you have been just so, so encouraging every time. And uh, and we appreciate that so much because it is absolutely awesome. And it's a privilege and a joy to be able to come and, and to be with you each time. Well, let me find my little uh, uh, deal here, a little thing. Hopefully I get this right. Um, when we talk about the Great Awakening, um, you know, lots of different things come to our mind. If you've read your history books and uh, thought and, and, and learned a little bit about this, you'll probably recognize some of the names that we'll uh, talk about. In fact, Jonathan Edwards is one of the, uh, the main uh, people in the beginning of the Great Awakening, because it was really, it all officially started under his uh, preaching up at Northampton, up in uh, Massachusetts. And so, uh, but we're going to look at him next week. And so when Stephen and I met with Mark a couple weeks ago uh, to kind of go over what we would be kind of breaking this down, what we would be looking at uh, these next three weeks, uh, Mark said, you know, he said, you know, you can cover the Puritans. You can go back and cover them because he said we're about in this era or this uh, this time frame right now. And he said, or else you could go, you could cover the Great Awakening. He said, you know, to get Jonathan Edwards in there. And of course, there's George Whitfield, there's John Wesley. And so we just tried to narrow it down to a couple of things that we could cover. And then he's going to pick it up and he'll cover them uh, in in uh, more depth uh, a little bit later on. So I'm going to try not to get into uh, Jonathan Edwards today. That'll be for next week. Week. I'm going to try. I'll just be basically hitting the highlights with uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley too, because I think Mark's probably going to cover uh, them. I, I, at least I believe so. So um, we're just going to be talking about uh, this 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 happening, this this unique event that happened in American history that nothing like it had happened before, and I dare say nothing has happened like it since. It happened from about the late 1730s. Uh, to about the 1750s, some said that some, maybe some of the effects, you know, eventually reached into the 1770s or so. In other words, after, uh, uh, you know, we were, we had, re- were really close to becoming an, a nation. A nation. Um, but all of this happened actually before America was officially a nation. It was still the, the colonial England. It was uh, still under the king at this time when this great awakening happened. Now, we've seen, we talk about revivals. And um, like I say in your notes here, if you come from a, a Protestant background, then when we talk about uh, revivals, you know, it kind of brings some things to mind. Um, when I served for about five and a half years up in uh, West Texas, 
uh, little uh, town of Spring Lake. Uh, we, we, we had two revivals every year. You know, you had one in the spring, you had one in the fall. And, uh, you, you know, and, and, and when you were, I was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Spring Lake, where they do not have a spring and they do not have a lake. But, um, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, and I was five miles from Earth. Now, some of you have suspected that maybe I'm from outer space for some time, but there was actually Earth, Texas, if you know kind of where that is, up there kind of around Plainview, about an hour north of Lubbock, an hour uh, south of Amarillo. And so little town, farming community, some of the best five and a half years that we'd ever spent. If you'd take me out there when I was still in seminary and told me this is where your first pastor's going to be, I would have probably looked into electrical engineering or something else like that. I'm like, what? That, I mean, I have nothing in common. But it was an incredible experience. It really, really was. But um, so we were uh, out there and we would have revivals. And uh, what was so interesting is that when you'd have those revivals, you'd have the people from the Methodist church that would come and you'd have folks over at First Baptist and Earth that would come and you'd have some up in Dimmit that would come and, and they'd just come all over because it's like when there was a revival going on. I mean, besides the fact that you had to drive at least an hour where there was anything going on, you know, uh, other than right there in the town. So it was kind of a, a big event. And consequently, whenever uh, First Baptist would have a revival, guess what? They, you know, Bobby came down and asked me, he said, hey, you mind if I put some posters up? We'd put them on our doors. You know, there's a revival going on First Baptist and Earth. Because, you know, we didn't worry a whole lot about, you know, well, there's going to be a bunch of people going down there for a while. And, you know, that happened. Sure, that happens anywhere. But it was a community event. I mean, it was, it was the, and the intent was to bring in a guest speaker, bring in a guest music leader, and to have, you know, three or four days where you tried to get people who were not in church, in church, people who did not know the Lord, saved, but also to revive the church, to be the church that God wanted it to be. And so uh, we, we, you, you've probably been to revivals. You've thought about revivals uh, like that. Uh, used to be, it would not be uncommon, uh, you know, a generation ago to have one that would last for, uh, you know, a week or so, more than just a few days. In fact, when I was here the first time, we had Life Action come in. If you remember, if those of you who are here, they were here for like two weeks and they wanted to go for a third. And that was highly unusual. Uh, but that wasn't, that wasn't really unusual uh, several, several years ago. Um, but you know what? Now it's almost impossible to announce a quote-unquote old-fashioned revival and be able to get people there for three or four nights a week because our, our lives and our schedules are just absolutely so incredibly busy. And uh, but that was you know not uh, uncommon then. Maybe you have some experience in that. The other uh, type of revival that we think in in our modern time is you know obviously the most famous evangelist. And I say that most famous evangelist, even though we have others that are written up in our history books and we know about. And of course, like D. L. Moody and uh, and uh, uh, of course Whitfield way way back there, and then uh, Billy Sunday and some of the others. But uh, he's got to be the most famous because of television and radio and the fact that he had association with world dignitaries. And so the, it's, it's amazing that the, probably the best-known, wide-known uh, evangelist, Billy Graham, lived in our lifetime. And, uh, you know, we think about his crusades. His three fa- most famous crusades, the first one in, in Los Angeles, I believe in 1947. That was the first one. And that's when he got wide uh, newspaper coverage in fact, uh, Hearst, uh, the, the newspaper tycoon, was the one that said, hey, give him, give him press. You know, in other words, he said, really push Billy Graham, push Graham, push Graham. And so he got a lot of press out of that, and that's when he really beca- kind of came on the scene. 
there was another revival in, uh, in London uh, around the time of the, world, the Second World War, and, and, and their hearts were so in need of hope, and he preached in, in London. And then when he preached in Madison Square Garden, I believe in 1957, uh, uh, another famous, uh, um, which all of these ran for several weeks. And that's what uh, was really uh, unusual about these crusades. Plus, he preached live to thousands of people. These were citywide crusades, and they would come in and they would... And as you know, he rents a stadium, and the stadium's filled. And it's just amazing to watch those Billy Graham crusades. And especially in his latter years, where he just simply walks to the pulpit. And if if you listen to his messages, they're about as plain and straightforward as you can possibly get. I mean, there's nothing fancy about them. They're just straightforward, they're just biblical, and the message never changes. You need to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's it. That's His message. And when He gives the invitation, you see people pour out of those seats. It's amazing that whether he's in Belfast or whether he's in America or whether he is in uh, some other uh, foreign country, especially when you see even young people that will be sitting there, teenagers that will be sitting there, and they're like this. They're just riveted. And I believe that's because there's an anointing on his life. And I know uh, about there's been controversies about his life. Praise the Lord. There's never been a controversy about his life as far as his faithfulness to his wife, who, by the way, just passed away this uh, last week, uh, Ruth Bell Graham. And um, uh, the love of his life, uh, there was never any scandal, never a hint of scandal as far as his personal life, his ethics, or anything like that. Uh, The Billy Graham uh, Evangelistic Association has the utmost of integrity. Uh, but, you know, sometimes he'll get slammed because, well, you know, but he's, he's not, as, uh, not as, doesn't seem to be as definite, for instance, as Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham, my goodness, he is in your face. Anytime he's on Larry King, CNN, it doesn't matter. He is going to get the gospel on there one way or another. He has a million and one ways to turn that conversation around to where, yes, but we believe you are a sinner and that you uh, need uh, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and he offers that to you and he loves you. He's going to say it. Franklin Graham's just right there, you know. Uh, Billy Graham in the latter years has been a little bit less, you know, kind of in your face about that. Uh, he's gotten some criticism. You know, it, it, does, he, does he believe that Jesus Christ is the only way uh, uh, to, to life in God? And from all I've seen is, I think, obviously, yes, he has stayed true to, to his core beliefs. But we think of these little revivals that we might have had in our hometowns and in our, in our own churches. We think around these, these citywide crusades. Louis Palau, for instance, is uh, the Latin Billy Graham, if you will. And he's kind of taken up the banner uh, as well. Uh, City Fest was uh, Louis Palau's um, uh, brainchild, if you will, in, in, in coming here to Houston that we participated in and we promoted. Um, but when, even when we think about these revivals, these crusades, they're still not anything like what happened in the Great Awakening. Um, there were other evangelists that paved the way before Billy Graham. Charles D. Finney, he was actually the, uh, one of the main uh, figures in the second Great Awakening. There was just a few years later, there was like a, a second uh, revival, awakening, a spiritual awakening. D.L. Moody, of course, Sam Jones, Billy Sunday. There you see the, the pictures of George Whitfield and John Wesley. George Whitfield, both of them were Methodists. 
uh, and, uh, but, but they eventually kind of parted a little bit over Calvinism because uh, Whitfield was more Calvinistic and Wesley was more Arminian. But they still remained friends. They just agreed to disagree. Uh, but they were, they were uh, both Methodists. In fact, John Wesley, and I think, again, I don't want to get too much into this, but John Wesley had a, um, was saved, or he believed he was saved, primarily because of a chance encounter with some Moravians when he was on his way over to the United States to preach to the Indians. And then a couple years later, he realized and he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And he, he really believes that's when he truly gave his life to Christ. And he was already an ordained minister and he was already uh, preaching and, and everything else. But he came to the realization he wasn't truly saved. And uh, so, uh, uh, and then as you go back, uh, the Moravians and, and, and Zizendorf and all of that, that, you know, when you go back and read your history, and again, I, it's, we're kind of shooting a little bit blind here because I don't want to get into another area that Mark is going to uh, uh, cover, but he may also cover about how that was influential and how it all had ramifications in, uh, in the Great Awakening. But look what the, uh, the historian um, Richard Bushman uh, wrote the book, The Great Awakening, he said, we inevitably will underestimate the effect of the awakening on 18th century society if we compare it to revivals today. The awakening was more like the civil rights demonstrations, the campus disturbances, and the urban riots of the 1960s combined. Pretty powerful force right there. Now, those weren't religious forces, but they were societal. They had a societal impact. Uh, altogether, these may approach though certainly not surpass the awakening in their impact on national life. So there's the key right there. What effect did it have on national life? Uh, not only the spiritual life, but how did it also affect the nation? Now let's consider some of the people, places, and events. 1740. Uh, this is uh, 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 right around the time when this breaks out. But 1740, when you look at colonial America was very different from even just a century earlier. Uh, when the pilgrims came over, um, they, were, they were passionate about God. Ironically enough, the Puritans the, the, and the pilgrims, uh, the very thing that was their strength also eventually became their weakness. They were so passionate about God and, and, and so uh, deep in their personal spiritual piety. And they came to have the freedom to be able to worship God. But not only that, they truly did want to begin a Christian community. One that would, be, uh, that would live under and submit to God. And so they came with, with, with great aspirations and great intentions and great sacrifice. Now, as time would go on... When sometimes, remember, if you were in the first service, you heard what Stephen talked about, that undercurrent. I thought that was very good. That was just a great illustration of what can happen sometimes spiritually. Um, they were very, very um, uh, serious. They were very committed believers. But the problem is, very subtly, their genuine faith and their sincere belief slipped over into dogmatism and legalism. And that's why then we started having persecutions and people flogged and people hanged and even people burned at the stake. 
sometimes falsely accused, sometimes trumped up charges. And so very subtly, it slipped from a sincere, honest belief and a desire to serve God to where now it became imposing that on others to also submit and practice that same thing. And if it did not meet their idea of what was genuine and true, uh, then they could be severely persecuted for that. Um, so before, in the, 17, or in, the, yeah, in the 1760s or so, or in the 1600s, I should say, um, very sincere believers coming in and, 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 and blazing new trails. But as time went on, people began to become lukewarm. People kind of left their, some of their spiritual roots, even way back then in the, in the beginnings of this country. One of the first things, one of the most devastating things that happened was called the Halfway Covenant, 1662. The Halfway Covenant was something that was um, a, an ingenious solution to a problem in the church, and that problem was that not many of the children were being converted. And you have to understand that just like you looked over uh, when we were studying the Reformation and how there was virtually no distinction between church and state. Remember that? Well, you know what? It turned out being a lot like that even over here in the, in the United States in the beginning too. There were church states, the Congregationalists, the Anglicans, uh, the Puritans. And so uh, they would have a, a state. And so when you were uh, baptized in the church, that also made you acceptable to serve in leadership in the, in the community. And people would be suspect of you if you did not have a church affiliation and you were not tied, uh, tied to a church or you had been baptized into the church. So what they said was, you know what? We've got all these children that are not making personal professions of faith. They're not, making, they're not coming before the church and asking for church membership. So... The way they solved that was the halfway covenant said, well, you know what? For members in good standing, we'll go ahead and baptize your children whether they've made a profession of faith or not. And so therefore, they will be tied into the church. Well, what do you think that happened? You've got churches full of unregenerate members, right? You've got members. You know, that, by the way, let me know. That's a little pet peeve I have with churches. You know, I just it just irks me. Don't you love it when I just share my pet peeves with you? It just irks me when I read on the back of a book, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, pastor of the, you know, 40 million member church or something like that, you know. Don't tell me how many members you have. I want to know how many are there on Sunday. How many people, you know, because we have these inflated membership roles. And, of course, now as Baptists, I know I'm treading into deep weeds right now. Because we don't take you off the rolls unless you die or you move to another one. And they send us at least three letters saying, hey, look, they joined our church. Let us have their letter, you know. I mean, those are sacred, you know. And uh, to think of just purging the rolls, you know, never, never, never. Don't say that. Don't mention it. But listen, you have the same potential problem. Just praying a prayer or going down and, 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 you know, saying, hey, I want to be a member of the church, leaves the door wide open that you will have people that are not truly saved. Like what Stephen said again. It's not just a matter of praying a prayer and, and okay, now everything's taken care of. What does your life show? What does your life demonstrate? Is there a change? Is there something to point to? And I'm not talking about inviting other people to point to you. But as you look, 
because uh, sometimes we, we also try to be fruit inspectors, and that's not good either. But, but at the same time, some, is there anything to point to that's saying, yeah, this is measurable. This is showing me that I'm in Christ. I'm in a relationship with Christ. You know, obviously, there's some of those things uh, uh, that can be taken and become, you can become legalistic about it. But, uh, but are there those things that say, you know, I am in Christ? Anyways, that was a problem in the church is that you had churches now full of unregenerate members. Well, what is that going to do for the passion and the understanding of the mission of the church? If you just simply have people that are on the rolls and, and are, are, are active in the, in the community, but they're not really born again. So the spiritual temperature, the spiritual um, uh, fervor began to wane. And by 1740, uh, uh, it was a lot of the things that would be um, considered worldliness was evidence, uh, evident in the, uh, in the colonial days. The Anglican and the Congregationalists were the two uh, primary denominations um, not long before this. And uh, in fact, in upwards of 75% of the uh, churches were Anglican and Congregationalists. Now, there were Baptists, there were Lutherans, there were even Catholics. Uh, there were some Presbyterians. Eventually, there were uh, Dutch Reformed. There were other denominations, but the Anglicans, which, by the way, Anglicans, uh, because it was not yet the United States of America, right? So it was the Anglicans. Well, what is what are Anglicans? What is the Anglican Church? Is it, yeah, now it's the Episcopalian. It's Episcopalian elsewhere other than England. In England, it's the Anglican Church, but elsewhere it's the Episcopalian Church. And so, uh, so this is, it was still, still these strong ties, even spiritual ties, uh, back to England. Um, between 1660 and 1760, the population of the colonies went from 75,000 to 1. Point, or, uh, 1.6 million people. That's quite, that's quite a bit of growth right there. So when you have this much growth happening, what's, what's going on? Where are the people going? What's happening to the little villages? What's happening to the little towns? The little towns now are becoming cities. And, and, and what, what is the dynamic that you see happening in these uh, densely populated areas? As they begin to grow, well, then the people are, are pushed in tighter together as well, right? And if there's not a strong spiritual foundation there... Listen, we know what happens. Left to our own devices, we know how human beings are. Uh, we begin to drift. In fact, it has to be a work of God to keep us drift or, or leaning towards God because our natural tendency because of sin is to drift away from God. And then uh, as there's more influence along that, then these are some of the things that begin to happen. By 1740, the Anglicans and the Congregationalists made up only 57% of the churches in the colonies. Why is this? Because now the Baptists are coming, more Baptists are coming from England. Uh, you also have uh, the Presbyterians coming on the scene. You have the Quakers that are coming on the scene. And what are they meeting up with? More and more of them are coming, and they're meeting up with people who are disillusioned with the deadness of the churches that are there in the colonies now and with, with increased societal pressures with economic issues and everything else. You know what they're finding is that their hearts are ready for something of hope, to bring them hope and, and to bring them something to, to really uh, uh, live for. Their, their hearts are ready for spiritual renewal. 
Again, the Great Awakening began under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, the pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, in 1734. We'll look at him next week. But I tell you what, like what I just said about Billy Graham, you know how God's anointing is on him. When Jonathan Edwards preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you'd be amazed how that was delivered if you don't already know. He read the entire thing. And he had this very unimpressive voice. And as he was looking over the pulpit, read the entire sermon like this. And he said the effect was that people were hanging, literally gripping the pews. And we'll read a little bit about that. We'll read a little bit of the sermon. He didn't pull any punches. I mean, just the title alone. We'll talk about church growth and postmodern sinners in the hands of an angry God. That'll get them coming in the doors, won't it, today? It did then. Anyways, there were three men that kind of paved the way for Jonathan Edwards. Before Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, there were actually three men that had already begun to sow the seeds for revival. The first one is Cotton Mather. He wrote it extensively. In fact, he was an intellectual. If I'm not mistaken, uh, I think he went to um, Harvard. I may be wrong on this, but I think I'm right. But I think he started when he was about 11. So how about them apples? Started pastoring when he was 19. Started pastoring this church, the North, uh, the North Church in Boston, when he was 19 years old and pastored it until his death. Uh, committed to that one congregation. Um, but he, um, he was uh, uh, brilliant. In fact, probably second only to J- Jonathan Edwards. Uh, but he had a passion for God. And he wanted so badly, he was very concerned about the apathy, the spiritual apathy that he saw in the people. And he started to, to preach sermons. and to, he, he wrote extensively so many books and booklets and manuals and so forth and, he, and tracts. And he just was constantly writing. And, uh, and, and, and this was his theme, is the, the, the need for renewal, the re- need for spiritual awakening. Another individual was Jacob Freulinghausen. Now, I couldn't find a picture of Jacob. I found one, Freulinghausen, but I knew that wasn't him. Um, but, uh, I mean, it looked like it was probably around the Victorian age or so forth. There's no way that could have been him. And so I looked high and low and uh, couldn't find one. So you just kind of, if you want to find you know, encourage you to do so. But Jacob Freulinghausen came to New Jersey from Holland in the 1720s and began working with the residents of the Dutch-speaking people up in around New Jersey. And uh, he too had that same message, wanting to see spiritual renewal and for the people to, to, uh, to seek God and to, to leave their spiritual apathy. He had a great influence on Gilbert Tennant and his brothers, John and William. Gilbert was also a pastor, and he and Jacob met up, and he started. Uh, he was such a model for, uh, for uh, G- uh, Gilbert, and so then he too was saying that same message, and he and his brothers, John and William, actually went a little bit further south, not just up in the New England states, but they went a little further south to take that message uh, to some of the, uh, the more rural areas. So these three men were very influential in sowing the seeds and, if you will, preparing the soil so that when Jonathan Edwards came along and it, and it was just God's timing, God's sovereignty, and then when he began to preach those messages about three years before the actual revival broke out and then that key message, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that's when the Great Awakening started taking off. What were the effects? Now, see, we're already jumping to the, uh, to the effects of the Great Awakening. 
there was a resurgence in Calvinism. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Calvinist. Uh, George Whitfield, Calvinist. Uh, even Cotton Mather uh, was, was more Calvinist as well. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought that would be death. I mean, Calvinism to revival? Yeah, because what? think about it. What does Calvinism emphasize? The sovereignty of God. A holy God. That we are totally helpless. That there's nothing that we can do. We are depraved. We are sinners. And we are totally dependent on a merciful God to save us. If we're to have any hope whatsoever, we're totally dependent on this merciful God. You see, the, the, the one thing about Arminianism uh, that, that, that sometimes people in Calvinists can sometimes really zero in on, and I think sometimes it's an unfair uh, uh, accusation, but, but the one thing about Arminianism is that they believe that there is some responsibility on man's part to respond to God. And there is. And how that all fits into God's uh, in predestination and God's sovereignty, God knows. Because both are taught in Scripture. But there's a part on, uh, in, 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 in Arminianism, if you're not careful, you think, well, you know what? I've thought it through, and I believe this is what I probably need to do. And so, therefore, I think I'm going to give my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. Well, see, that kind of indicates that there was something that maybe you had to do with it. There was a response on your part, kind of work with God for salvation to come, Right? Calvinist would said, no, even your coming to him was because he moved you to him. You are helpless. You're nothing without him. And so when their hearts were ready and, and, and ready for a message of hope, well, guess what? This was the message of hope. And the fact was, not only is he a holy God, sovereign God, you have no hope without him, but he's also merciful and he sent his son and come to him. And so see, the, uh, 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 George Whitfield. And uh, um, Jonathan Edwards did not emphasize the reality of, well, the elect will just automatically come. No, they pleaded with people to be able to, to, to come. So it was almost like they had the theology of the Calvinist, but the mode of the Arminius. Or, you know, hey, come to Christ. Come to Christ. You must respond. You must come to Christ. And people did respond. But there was a resurgence of Calvinism. In other words, the sovereignty of God, a holy God. And we have a responsibility to him. And apart from him, we are lost and we are helpless. There was a revival of genuine spiritual renewal in individual lives and a marked impact on the social woes of the culture. So there was a change in the culture. People did come to repentance. Now, here's the key. Not sure how many people were truly converted. Okay? Because you can't necessarily measure the increase in church membership. There was an increase in church membership. And it wasn't because of the halfway covenant. But you can't automatically say, oh, increase in church membership means automatic increase in conversions. Right? Because there could have been some of those people who were truly converted, but they realized, they were touched, they were realized and they repented and said, I need to now get into the body of Christ. I need to be living out my faith. So we don't really know. There's some disagreements among uh, scholars as far as whether all of this was due to these mass conversions because uh, there's, there's uh, competing evidence about that. But there was a marked impact on the society and the woes of the culture. There was a greater concern for education. 
So through all this, now they're saying, you know what? We need to make this known. We need to teach the Word of God. We need to be trained in the Word of God. And so then there was a, an increased awareness of education. Not just education as far as like education in the enlightenment sense, but educating men to be preachers and teachers of the gospel and the Word of God. And so, continuing the effects... Uh, the Presbyterians started Princeton in 1746. That's what's so sad about all these Ivy League schools is they were all begun as schools to train ministers. And in fact, when you go there today, you'll find cornerstones. You'll find scriptures all over the place. And yet they're in total denial now. It's become totally secularized. But anyways, the, the Presbyterians started Princeton in 1776. The Baptists began what would become Brown University in uh, 1764. Uh, Queens College, later Rutgers, was founded by the Dutch Reformed in 1766. Uh, Dartmouth, which our own uh, Brad Osmus went to Dartmouth. Uh, he's Jewish. Uh, by the, they were started by the Congregationalists in uh, 1769. And so you had these schools, these great... Uh, centers of education that started because of the Great Awakening where people saying we need to train ministers to take the Word of God to the land. So that's, that was a pretty significant, uh, significant event. Now as we talk about points for home, um, hey, how about that? I'm going to get you out early. Of course, I owe you, what, about an hour and the number of times that I've been here to speak and how long I've gone, how many times I've gone over. The points for home. How do you define revival and have you experienced it in your life and in the life of your family? How do you define revival? Well, I think as we look back at the Great Awakening, you know, and again, people can come up with different definitions of revival. Uh, some can say, we well, you know, revival was kind of like uh, I, got a, you know, I made a New Year's resolution. I started, kind of stopped doing things one way and I started doing things another way. Um, some enlightenment there. But how do you define revival? Well, uh, that's not always easy to define, but you know what? I think when it happens, you know it and you see it. And it's important not to live in denial that if your life has become stagnant and stale and humdrum and monotonous and mundane, have I got enough adjectives in there? Uh, It's time to have revival in your life. What's the secret to revival? Well, the main thing that will keep you from revival is pride. Pride. Sin, in its essence, is rooted in pride. Now, it'll take other forms. But pride is the one thing that will keep you from revival. You might say, well, I'm just a simple person. I'm, 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 you know, uh, or, or, or let's say you have someone that is a, a that desires social status and desires um, people to know know them to ha- to have a name, to have riches, to have fame. Well, that's all rooted in pride, because there's something that you want to be in other people's eyes. Or it can just simply be that even if you don't care what other people think, you don't care what others how they see you and so forth. You just want the treasures of earth. Because you want to enjoy and you want to indulge in that. Once again, that's rooted in what? Pride. Because what is pride? Pride is when the emphasis is on you. Me. It's all about me. 
It's all about me. But what happens if you're a simple person? You say, I'm not rich. I'm not, I don't have a lot of money. I, I don't have a lot of status. I, I go about my life. I don't cause any problems. I, I'm a pretty good person. I don't consider myself to be a prideful person. But if you sense in your life that there is a need for spiritual renewal and an awakening, then it could, even in your life, be pride that could keep that from you because it may be the one thing that keeps you from literally laying on the floor on your face and saying, Oh, God, I need you. I need you. I desperately need you. Because it could be pride that said, Well, you've never done that before. And and you weren't raised that way. And, well, you don't have to do that. That's a little extreme. You can be just as sincere in your heart, sitting on a pew with your eyes closed and saying, Oh God, I need you. But sometimes it requires some sort of a manifestation of reckless abandonment to say, Oh God, I need you. I tell you, um, there are times that I struggle with pride in my life in different forms. And when I have grown, and it's happened many times in my life. In fact, I would say that sometimes, I'll give you just, just for a second here, just a little personal aspect. Ministry can sometimes be the most toxic to a spiritual life. Because now it's where you worship. It's where you work. It's where you live. And you can learn very easily to go through the motions and learn to do the job. Because, I mean, there's certain tasks that you do in ministry. You learn. When I, when I first went to Spring Lake, uh, seminary taught me all good theology and everything else. But by the time I got to seminary, I mean, got to Spring Lake, and I remember the very first time I was going to baptize somebody. I'd never baptized anybody. I'd never led the Lord's Supper. I'd never led a deacon's meeting. I was praying that. No, I'm just kidding. Um... Never, never led a business uh, meeting. All these things that are just tasks. Well, you know what? I learned how to do that. Because that's part of what the job requires. There's certain tasks. But through all those, uh, preparing a, a, a Bible study. I find myself now, I'm in the Word of, of God a lot. But I'm always in it for someone else. I'm always preparing a Bible study. Always preparing a sermon. And there were many times where I just literally would go and shut the office door and get on my face and say, God, I'm in dangerous territory because I've lost my passion for you. I need you. I need you. And I remember one time in particular, I remember, I realized that God was beginning to get through to me. You hear that? Beginning to get through to me. And here's how I knew it. Because I was on my face by my desk and my secretary, this particular time happened down in Pecan Grove, she had to ask me something. Scott, I wanted to... Oh, sorry. You know, and I knew that God was beginning to get through to me and break my pride when I did not even look up. And I just totally ignored her because I said, God, this is a holy moment with you. And she just kind of eased the door shut and walked away. 
Because, see, when I was in the flesh and I was just simply doing it because it was part of my job and I'm supposed to have a quiet time and I'm supposed to open up the day in prayer so that all the things that I put my hands to, that the Lord brings to across my path that day, that I will handle it in the Spirit. See, if I'd been in the flesh, when she opened up, I'd go, oh, yes, uh-huh, you know, right away. Distracted. So I knew that God was beginning to get through to me when that happened. But pride will keep you away from spiritual awakening, a spiritual renewal. Pride can also uh, keep you from confessing sin. Pride will also keep you from going to someone else and asking for forgiveness. Pride will do all those things. And all of those things are necessary for true awakening to happen in your life. We cannot ever become complacent and rely on the work of the Savior in days gone by to see us through today. Our relationship with Christ requires daily renewal and attention. You see, before 1740, a century earlier, so many wonderful things happened in the name of God. But then people's hearts began to drift. And as prosperity came and... Uh, 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 blessings came, they also drifted. And the now motives and intentions and priorities began to change. And finally, we won't go there, but I just want to leave this for you uh, before we leave. Consider Acts 2. One, uh, well, actually, just, just very quickly, turn there. Acts chapter 2. We might look at, we're not going to look at all those verses. I just want to look at one verse in particular. Acts chapter 2. When... Uh, Peter preached his famous message, which, by the way, if you read the message, it's, in fact, if you study it in seminary according to homiletics, which is preaching, it wasn't really that good of a sermon. Sure accomplished a lot, though, didn't it? Technically, we see how technical we can get become sometimes. Look at verse 37. After Peter preaches his message, straight on, in your face, you must repent, you crucified the one that came to save you from your sins. And uh, actually, look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. And then look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? See, I think revival and awakening includes the attitude of heart that when you've been confronted with the truth, to just simply get on your face and your simple response is just just like what we see in Acts 2, which was genuine awakening, genuine revival, is to say, okay, now what must I do? Show me, Lord, what must I do? No holds barred. No conditions. No restrictions. No, uh, no strings attached. Just tell me what I'm, gonna, what I'm supposed to do. Live through me and I will obey. I will do it. Like I said, it's sometimes hard to define, but when you see it, you know it when you see it. And one of the things we see in Scripture is that the response is or the effect is to simply say, just tell me what to do, Lord. I'm ready. So, uh, that was a... Flash in the pan going through the awakening. And for some of you, I just encourage you to take it from here and to study it more in depth. 
We'll look at Jonathan Edwards, which obviously I'll pull in some additional things next week. But we'll look at Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, next week. But as we study this, I would just like to encourage you to have a simple prayer. Lord, whatever this means to me, let it be. Whatever this is to mean in my life, let it be. That we would all seek spiritual awakening. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this day. And Lord, we pray that you would do something that only you could get credit for in our lives. Lord, we can just manufacture and manipulate and create so many things in this day and time that looks godly and looks authentic, but it lacks power because it's not genuine. Oh God, pour out your spirit on us. Awaken us. Awaken our hearts to you. And Lord, live your life through us. Make us clean vessels. And Lord, use us to impact the little worlds that you have placed us in. Let us be light. And to bring you glory. Awaken us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.